This is an interview with Colorado-based organizational consultant Jeff Kinsey, who has a company called The Logos Group, about 20 minutes from Boulder, Colorado. We talk a lot about the influx of people into Colorado, the quote-unquote note police at work, finding a true strategic path, and the question of what diversity even is, i.e. is it racial, gender-based, or cognitive-driven. Hope you enjoy it. We'll be back next week with a new one. Let's get to it. That was cool, and I like CU. Um, and I like when I was a kid, I was big into CU, like uh, Cordell Stewart and stuff. Oh, nice. But, um. I kind of thought it was weird because, like, one time I was in Boulder, it felt like every time you met, like, a Starbucks barista, they had a PhD, you know? <laughs> <laughs> You're like, this th- this economy seems imbalanced, you know? So, yeah. I don't know. No, it's supposed to have one of the highest educated, you know, com- you know, per capita, you know, communities in the, in the country. And, yeah. You know, and a lot of it is because of, you know, all the professors – you know, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a fairly small town, really, you know, 100,000 people. Uh-huh. I've yet to learn whether or not that includes the 30,000, 40,000 students or not. Right. But it tends to bring a level of, I don't know, sophistication and culture maybe that you wouldn't normally found, find in a 100,000-person town. Yeah, totally. You know, in the Absolutely. middle of the country. And what's Denver, do you know? Is that like, it's probably got to be like. Close to a million, north of a million by now. I think it's closer to three or four. Oh, really? Damn, and that number is a moving target, especially now. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's been a place people have been moving for the last 10, 15 years. Yep. And now it's seen as this sort of oasis away from coronavirus where, right. you know, we're hearing about all these people from New York and San Francisco that now want to move to Denver yeah. to get away from those areas. So. My, uh, my girlfriend's friend, she's a lawyer in San Antonio and she's actually staying with us right now, probably through like Thursday because she had like a crappy breakup with a dude she was with and she's like, I got to get out of town. Right. So her, like her first instinct because her boss would was flexible with it at this law firm. Her first instinct was like, I think I'm going to try to move to Denver. (laughs) And I was like, I can think of like three or four people in the last five years that I've known who like, they either had like a, like a personal adjustment or like their career became more flexible. And they're like, Oh man, I think I'm going to move to Denver. So it's like, um, I don't know. It's like, a it's like a golden god for people, you know. But right. then I also know a kid that moved out there from the East Coast, and he likes it a lot. But he has a like a two bedroom near Coors Field, and it's like twenty seven hundred, maybe low <laughs> three thousand, right? So it's like that's still lower than like the like the Atlantic Seaboard corridor, but it's like still expensive for a two bedroom theoretically you know so right i don't know like you get more especially if you're like a more outdoorsy 
person, you have more access, plus there's probably a lot of transplants in Denver, so like adult um, friendship forming might be easier. Both of those are benefits, but like 2700 for a two-bedroom is still like a decent chunk of money, you know? So, right. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, you know, Colorado's not the value play that it once was. Right, for sure. Are you lifelong or are you transplanted to that area too? Yeah, no, I'm a transplant too. We moved out here actually 15 years ago next week. Okay. And and it was the same kind of thing. You know, we were living up in Northern California. Uh-huh. Um, it seemed to get really crowded. It was, you know, unquestionably outrageously expensive. You know, our oldest child was uh, going into middle school. You know, the one, the one in the neighborhood we lived in wasn't that great. So it was like either spend another million dollars on a house to go live in a better neighborhood right. or just get the hell out. And, yeah. and that's what we did. And For sure. I was actually talking to somebody yesterday about how even the whole thing, like in the current social climate, even the whole thing about people saying like, well, if I spend another X amount of money, I can be in a better middle school zone. Like you could even say that that's like a low grade version of like bias, you know? Yeah, for sure. I have a friend that's a teacher in New York. He's been a teacher for like 15 years. And, and I think he's worked in like three of the four major regions of America. And uh, he's always like, well, the reason you can't like really solve public education stuff is because um, people just solve it at the family level with money. They either move or they move within their community or whatever. So it's like there's always going to be some schools that aren't going to get however a state divvies up resources, right? He's always like, well, uh, the more affluent or people with means or have companies or jobs that are growing, they're always going to get out of certain areas, right? Um, So I always think about that now when people like have these debates about opportunity. It's like, I, I still think opportunity exists for sure, but I think like the way we... I'd like tons of families do exactly what you just described, right? It's like, well, I'm going to go over here or like in city or out of state or whatever, you know? So it just like, it moves people around for better familial opportunities, but that changes probably like the societal opportunity picture, I guess. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, you know, it's a, it, it's a matter of privilege to have the mobility. Yeah to lift yourself up and move to a different place where you think it might be better for your family. Oh, absolutely. So can, tell me a little bit about like what logos group, or I've, I don't even know if I said it right, but tell me a little bit about what y'all do just yeah. like general scope of stuff. Yeah, sure. You know, you know, the logos group um, is, is a, a consulting and coaching practice that I formed probably three, three and a half years ago. And it's really based, you know, I was surprised to learn that logos itself doesn't really mean logic. I mean, it's kind of the way we've took that word as a root to, to mean. But what it really means is, you know, kind of the logical end to following your true path, sort of the reward that is yours if you follow your true path. So as a consultant and coach, my goal is to get people onto their true path whether it's an organizational path or an individual path, 
It's really to help them define, you know, what their innate culture is and and then set them on a course to to follow that. Because I believe that if you are following your true path, that's, you know, that's where you get, um, you know, really what you're looking for. So in terms of your own path, did you have a background in that stuff contextually or did you kind of like go off and try to do that for others? Yeah, you know, it's it. It's an interesting reflective process that I went through where, Mm -hmm. you know, I spent 20 years living what I thought was the American dream. Right. You know, where you work hard and you get successful and you're happy. And I spent, you know, 20 years in Wall Street banking, you know, working hard and being successful and being really unhappy. And, you know, maybe common thread. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, you know, then you kind of realize when you're coming close to 50 that, you know, you've spent, you know, your life's work doing something that's not really that fulfilling. And, you know, maybe you ought to figure out what it is that really makes you tick and maybe what your ultimate purpose is for being here on this planet. So I went through that reflective process and realized that I had gained this great skill set in dealing with people, you know, because all banks are is just huge groups of people. Yep. That aren't producing anything. They're just, you know, manipulating, persuading, whatever it is, other people, um, whether they're clients or, or employees. So, you know, I had this great knowledge base on how to motivate people, um, but I didn't like the format that I was doing it in. So I kind of I got out of that. You know, I took the business acumen that I had and my understanding of how people work. Mm-hmm. And I started really consulting and coaching in the nonprofit space because that ecosystem doesn't necessarily benefit from a lot of business acumen. Right. You've got really passionate leaders um, that are doing really important things for the community, but they don't always have the background of uh, effective organizational infrastructure. Yeah, I'd agree and, with that. Right. And then, and then at an individual level, they don't necessarily understand how to get out of their own way, really, you know, how to find a place of, peace and contentment within their daily lives where they're just so wrapped up around their to-do list and, you know, getting more grant money and and trying to serve their population as it's changing that, you know, there's a tremendous amount of stress that's, that's definitely possible. And I see it regularly. So to be able to add some business acumen to what they do to make them more efficient as an organization and to help their leadership really get a better relationship to their thoughts and a better understanding of where those thoughts come from and what sort of control they have in working within that realm, you know, really helps them find a comfortable place to be effective leaders and have an organization infrastructure that supports that effectiveness. You know, they can get a lot more done. Do you think that paradoxically, and I've, I've worked in one nonprofit as a full-time and I've observed a couple others. I've done some contracts with them. Do you think that paradoxically, or maybe not even paradoxically, but the passion for the cause of some people that become leaders in nonprofit is actually like their biggest impediment at some level? Mm-hmm. Like they get tripped up by the fact that they're so passionate that they just like want all their outputs whether it's like a tweet or a press release or whatever to be like perfect and in alignment with the mission like do you ever think about that continuum or do you see that less no i mean the i it you know what you're describing has a lot to do with that nonprofit ecosystem right 
which is really built on having to um, compete for grant money to such a level that as an executive director of a nonprofit, it really takes your eye off of that passionate ball that right. got you into that business in the first place. So I think, you know, and over time that that'll wear you down. Yeah, you know? totally. I just see that happening. Do so you, they, do you ever think this is probably like, I don't think this is solvable. It's like a, uh, probably a free market. Um, I'd call it a problem, but I don't think most people view it as a problem. But like, do you ever think it's ridiculous how people that are doing work that could like move societal elements are at a comp band down here and then people that are doing like you know you are in banking or whatever i'm not saying banking is not important it is but you have people doing like transactional stuff in that world that are maybe making four to five times what people doing potentially transformative stuff in the nonprofit space are doing so i don't I don't know if you can change that within capitalism, but does that ever come up in terms of like, not maybe like leaders or founders, but like staff at nonprofits? Like, obviously, at some point, as you get older, sometimes more money is going to be attractive if you have a young family or whatever. Is that like a, is that a just like a consistent um, escalator problem that you see in nonprofits? Or are there like, some areas where compensation plus mission uh, bridges that gap or like, do you run into that when working with nonprofits, just like there's a churn because at some point people are like, Oh, I'd rather make more money and do like a bunch of BS <laughs> in a white collar context. You know, do you run into that or see that? Yeah. You know, I think it, it, it comes down to a very individual level, you know, from, from the, you know, from that perspective of the individual, I see some are really interested in making money, right? You know, the right. the American dream to many people is the size of their bank account. Right. <clears throat> and then there's people that don't prescribe to that, that are, you know, much more, I guess, aware of some of the inequities in society and make it a point to try and improve those. And understand that by getting into that space, they're really giving up the fat bank account in order to do that. And and I, you know, so so each of those individual goes in their separate ways. I think the people that focus on money might, like I did, come to the perspective at some point that that's not the key to happiness. And maybe helping people and having, you know, better human connections is actually a better way to go. And then get into the nonprofit space like I have. And then you have people that started in the nonprofit space because of this passion. And, you know, they just bang their head against the wall so long that they get to the point where it's not worth it to them anymore. And and maybe, you know, not, you know, not having to wear the same suit for five years uh, is more appealing to them. And they want to go see what that is on the other side. And you see people bouncing back and forth yep. between those two realms. And, you know, there's de definitely some animosity on the nonprofit space for people coming in from the private sector and trying to fix them. You know, the white yeah, safety thing is, is a big um, barrier and, and, and something to be aware of. Did you when you were on the banking for like for profit side and obviously if you came to kind of this like journey of your own, you probably had a focus on 
people when you were in banking and you like rightfully pointed out that it's really just like a bunch of people that need to be persuaded to do stuff. And that's pretty much what the industry is. So like, did you ever run into it? Cause I always find this interesting at like white collar corporate for profit level. Did you ever run into like the fact that you seem to care about people like people above you were saying like, don't, like don't care about that like focus on numbers or like this quarter or whatever i just feel sometimes like in white collar we've had a declining focus on people for 15 to 25 years and i don't know if you saw that and that was like one of the factors that like pushed you to another journey too yeah it um for sure and i would even be more specific that it's it's not even a, you know, disrespect, if you will, for, for people or fellow right. humans, it's, it has to do with the risk associated with individual ideas. Right. You know, when that's you have a, 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 you know, a striated organization that's got 40 levels of management in it, you know, all of those different management levels are trying to protect themselves from those below and those above. Yep. So any fresh idea is actually a risk. Yeah. So, you know, it's like we've got this policy and procedure that we've come up with, you know, our our lawyers and our compliance department has told us this is the safest way for us to operate. So we don't care if you've got the greatest idea we've ever heard. It's a risk and it's not welcome. And if you think about humans from an evolutionary perspective, we're basically hardwired to, like, identify risk and flee from it. So yeah, exactly. that's like what I've never understood about like, you know, I, I worked at a couple of places that are like 42 years of management. And it's like that that model just has no it makes no logical sense. Like it helps scale and it helps generate more revenue. And those are both great. But like on the people side, it makes so little sense. Right. And then <laughs> I read a thing a couple of years ago by Paul Graham from Y Combinator. And he has this like tree philosophy too, where he's like, okay, let's say there's 40 tiers and you're at like tier 20, right? So it's like an idea from tier 10, like might float up to you. And then when you're in meetings around your tier, you represent like tiers one through 19 of ideas because they're all floating up to you. But then like, whenever you have a unique idea, like you have to get through 20 other levels for that idea to like reach somebody that can actually sign off on it, you know? And it's not like, obviously, you know, there's people that can sign off on micro stuff. So it's not perfect, but I was always like, I just never understood anthropologically why we structure like enterprise that way. But I also don't necessarily have a better way to do it. So uh, I know people like, respond to hierarchy and need it because it's comforting to know like who you're accountable to but I also just I agree with you it creates an idea where like compliance has to win out you know because it's like protection of level right yeah well, you know and the, and the flip side of that which is you know you know really how I coach and consult now is that mm-hmm. when you actually respect the human being on the inside and the value that they bring and the ideas that they have and you know, there's so much around diversity and inclusion now, you know, when you have a really inclusive, diverse uh, idea base in front of you and 
these people feel safe in being able to express themselves, you know, what what the organization can create, on, you know, from that level is so much greater than when it's purely inhibited that, you know, it, you, you know, a lot of what I do is try to get everybody to understand, you know, who they are innately as a person yep. and, you know, sort of the risk reward process within that and keeping it close knit and really uh, uh, allowing those ideas to come forward and discussing them in an open environment and deciding ultimately what's best for the team, the organization, you know, whatever level that shows up at. So, so you don't you need do, the, you don't need the no police in the way when you can right. all have this open you know discussion about what's best and nobody feels like their feelings are being hurt. So when you do they understand when, when you do leadership coaching, I always wonder this, right? So you're talking about like kind of getting to know people and bringing out what's unique about them and understanding like the person, and I'm like a thousand percent on board with that. Do you ever run into this? Because I've seen this with other coach and consultant people I know. Like, it's hard sometimes for managers or leaders to embrace that because they're scared about like being friendly with employees. Like, if you get to a deeper, more transparent level, then it's like hard to discipline them or have a sense of accountability or whatever. Do you ever run into that? And like, if you have people that are like, reluctant to kind of like embrace the people side or get to know what makes people tick? Like, how do you deal with those types of situations? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I, I think it's the reason where I, why I start from this cultural perspective, you know, what's the innate culture of the organization? And that always reflects, you know, the, the personalities of the leadership team. So, you know, let's have an honest conversation about who you really are as a leader and and decide what you know behaviors correlate with that and then make sure that the organization is set up to you know properly award and hold people accountable to those behaviors and then if you're hiring people that fit in those behaviors then you have this you know uh, an environment where you know you don't have to protect everything and i think you know accountability that like you mentioned that's you know really the biggest part of it i mean we can be friends even really close friends and still hold each other accountable for commitments yeah. to make to each other. And, and if, you know, if we have this very personal human humane interaction or, or level at which we interact, then we don't get offended when somebody holds us to something that we promised that we were going to do, you know, when they hold us accountable. Um, it's when you haven't established that sort of cultural foundation from the beginning that there's an opportunity for a lot of misunderstanding and that part of that misunderstanding is if I'm friends with somebody, I can't tell them they screwed up. Right. And, and, and that's not that's not true. I mean, I haven't seen that to be true when the organization is established in a way that respects everybody's individuality. Yeah, I agree with that completely. And I feel like there's still like weirdly confusion about it. I haven't seen as much nonprofit structuring to know if it's as common there, but like. You see in mid-sized companies, bigger companies a lot that managers get real scared about like kind of meeting people where they're at or like learning about them because they're afraid like it's going to remove some edge from the accountability side of it. But then to your point, it's like most friendships or marriages, relationships that you are in is like there's your friends, but there's 
also a shared notion of accountability. So there shouldn't necessarily be like a thick line between that and how we approach like work, you know? So right. I've always like, that's always confused me too, personally. So, um, so since you've been doing, uh, since you've been doing logos group, like what are some of the, this is maybe like an on the spot, question so you don't have to have a other worldly answer to it or anything but what what are some of the things that like when you went into it I'm sure you had some idea or like a vague preconceived notion of what it might be like what are some of the things that you've encountered coaching and working with orgs and individuals that surprised you that you like came across on a client engagement or whatever and you were like damn I did not when I shifted to this, I never saw something like that coming. Is there anything that was like completely out of left field for you? I, I you know, it's a, it's a great question. I know when I first came into it, I expected that, you know, the, the kind of knowledge base, I guess, that I brought to that, that environment would be so well received that business would just line up. Right. <laughs> Right, right. And and that is certainly not the case. Um, you know, it's still, you know, it's very much, business is very much a relationship engagement. Mm-hmm. And it's very trust focused as a result of being relationship based. So you still have to develop, you know, these connections with individual leaders to where they trust you enough to really open the kimono and show you what's going on inside. And And that takes time. You know, yep. so things don't happen quickly, regardless of how shiny the object you have, you know, show that you're waving in front of them. You still have to take that opportunity to develop a personal relationship. Yeah, so that, that was a bit surprising, but encouraging, too, because, you know, I really love building relationships with people, especially people I just meet. Yeah, I, I feel the same way sometimes about contract, too, is like when you start or if you have like a quote unquote body of work, sometimes you go into talking to somebody new and you think like, Oh man, this all like, this will represent itself or sell itself. And that's a hundred percent not true. (laughs) Right. It's like, um, knowledge base is good. And I do think people evaluate you off of that and previous examples of work and stuff are good. And I, I think people are evaluated off of that. But to your point, it's like, close to a hundred percent like relationship building, which is really all business regardless of profit level really is anyway. Um, but I've run into that too and stuff that I do where like you kind of make an assumption like, Oh, I've worked for similar types of organizations or people. So like landing this thing will be easy. And it's like, no, it's, <laughs> it's like you still have to put in the effort and time with the human being, you know? Right. No shortcuts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. So I guess the last thing I was going to ask you is, do you, let's say, whether it's nonprofit, for profit, I'm sure there's a lot of overlap. What, what are like three to five points of advice that you would give like an emergent uh, leader or even an established leader who's having like generalized issues I know every place is different, but what are some of the big buckets that like if you went into a new engagement that you would start with or just like what types of things that maybe leaders have blind 
spots for would you encourage them to be looking at right now? Yeah, no, that's great. Um, you know, the, 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 the biggest one has to do with blind spots around the kind of the evolution of the organization yep. and, and maybe how their leadership needs to evolve with that organization where, you know, when you start off small and it's all you, and then you've got a couple other people, but you're still doing most of the work. And now you've got 20 people. And now what do you do? You know, you can't micromanage and do everything like you used to. So you have to find a, you know, where that comfort level is within yourself for delegation, letting people run on their own, and then still being able to hold them accountable. Because, you know, you, you create such strong bonds with these people in the early days that you can run into this issue about accountability and how to hold your friend accountable when they keep doing the same thing that they've been doing, you know, the same thing wrong. So I think that's a big one. It's just kind of understanding how your role has changed and how the human needs to kind of adjust maybe to, to fit in with the role. Um, you, you know, listening is a big one. I think a lot of times, especially as a leader, you know, we're very directive. You know, the culture that we live in is very directive and not very listening focused. And, you know, being able to really understand the value of the contribution from somebody else and that that's much more valuable than them hearing again what you think about something, I think is really important. So developing those really good, strong, deep listening skills is important. And, you know, being open to that diversity of opinion, you know, that just because you think you're right doesn't mean you might not be. You know, a, a lot of what I do initially is help leaders understand that the way they think about something isn't the only way. Because <laughs> yeah. when you yeah. once you sort of are open to the fact that maybe there's another way, then you become curious about what those options might be. And that's where the magic happens really is in that place of curiosity. So, you know, I think there's 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 three of them there for you. Do you think this is like kind of a tack on to that? Do you think sometimes <clears throat> I do, and I don't know if it's like a bad way to think, but do you think sometimes that like we sometimes in diversity discussions we overfocus on like the race, gender side of it? And I agree those need to those are important and they need to be represented. Um, accurately and fairly, but I feel like the whole thing is really like a diversity of thought, diversity of opinion, diversity of idea conversation more than like a protected class conversation. Like you need to have both, but I feel like sometimes what happens is people like go after the conventional definition of diversity, but there's not, it's like you're still going from the same schools or the same pathways or whatever. And like, you're not getting diversity of thought, which I feel like is, it's harder to track, but it seems like the more important one. So not to like put down any definition of diversity, but do you, see it more as like a diversity of thought opinion thing at the broadest level? You know, I'll actually take it a step deeper. I think it's a diversity of experience. Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't think it's necessary to, to put a race or gender label on that. We understand that anybody that comes from a different culture, a different perspective, a different 
racial experience of life and society, a different gender experience of life and society in every one of these different areas, you know, that experience itself is what, you know, ultimately forms your thought patterns. And so the, so the more different experiences that you can incorporate into the conversation, you know, the more diverse thought that you're going to have in it. And a lot of that is going to be race and gender based, but, but I do think it's, it's probably more helpful and more healthy to look at it as not solely on those levels as much as the experience that those levels bring to the table.